Good morning, everybody. Uh, for those that may be joining us a little bit later, my name is Rob, and I serve as one of the pastors here at The Rock. And uh, we're, we're getting ready to enter our second week in our series on hot topics and things that, that we need to talk about as a church. And we mentioned some of the things that we're going to speak on, uh, but the first few weeks, we're going to talk about things that are foundational to our faith for us to understand exactly where we are as individual Christians and as we are as a church. And so last week we spoke about the fact that the church is a place where no perfect people are allowed. That there's no one in this church that should consider themselves better than anybody else. Every single one of us are guilty at one time or another of hypocrisy. We all have hurt one another. We all have done things to each other, and because of the forgiveness that we received in Jesus Christ, and because of the grace and mercy, we understand that we're not perfect, that we're able to walk together forward because of this. And so because of that, we have to think about, so what does the church stand on? What is it that ties us all together? And we just sung about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is what ties us all together as a church. Do you, do you realize that for some of us, including myself, we have closer bonds and ties with people in our local church than we do with our own blood relatives? Because the blood of Jesus is more powerful than DNA. Do you guys realize that? Jesus Christ dying for our sins and giving, making us part of a new family is what the church is all about. And so we have to obviously primarily realize that, that you and I are not perfect. And so we have to realize that we're just a bunch of wicked, rotten sinners that have been saved by the grace of God living this life together. So where do we go? What do we listen to? What, what do we read? What is what... Is what where do we find out more about ourselves and our relationship with Jesus? Where do we find out more about who we are as a church? Where do we find out how we can grow? What, what is it that now ties us together to Jesus? What tells us all of these things? And for those of us that have been saved for any amount of time, we know that we haven't been left stranded just to come up with, with some sort of idea of what we do as a church. God gave us the Bible. He gave us his word. And the word of God for us as believers is so strong and so powerful because we read in the very word of God, the Bible says that the word of God has been settled forever in heaven. We also read that the word of God is more powerful than any two-edged sword. It's so powerful that not only like a sword can it divide between joints and marrow, it can divide between soul and spirit. The word of God knows you better than you know yourself. And sometimes the reason why we don't get into the Bible like we're supposed to is because we know that's exactly what it does. And so we'd rather read something sometimes that's going to make us feel better than to really get deep down into what we need for our life. And for those of us who know that the word of God can convict us and mold us and shape us, it's the final authority for our faith and our practice. There are some of us, and maybe, and it's not just the younger generation. A lot of times we think it's the younger generation that's more skeptical. No, no, senior saints can be skeptical as well. So here's the question that we want to answer today. Can we trust the Bible? That, that, that is a question that you better have asked yourself. Because if you're just trusting the Bible because I told you to trust it, you, you didn't do your homework. 
You don't trust the Bible just because we say trust the Bible. You need to know why can we trust that the words that we read on the pages of still the number one best-selling book in the world, how can we trust this book? And so today, we're going to talk a little bit about some cerebral stuff. So I need you to get your headspace ready for that. Some of the stuff is going to be sound more educational, more uh, lecture form, some stuff that we want to talk about. How do we know that the Bible that we have today is the same Bible that, that we had when it was first written and it was letters and, and, and books of prophecy and all these things? How do we know that? So we're going to have a little bit of that. But most importantly, here's the question that I need you to answer for yourself. If you believe that you can trust the Bible, which I believe probably the majority of us in this room do believe we can trust the Bible, here's my question. Why aren't you letting it change you? You see, sometimes we get so caught up in the fact, oh, can we trust the Bible? Most of us know the answer to that question, but we don't let it change our life. For some of us, it's easy to trust the Bible when the promises are there and we need comfort, when we need peace, when we need hope. It's very easy to trust the Bible. We know we can Google texts that we can go to right away and say, okay, now I feel better because I read this. But do you know when it's hardest to trust the Bible? When the Bible is trying to teach you the things that need to be changed in your life. When the Bible tries to tell you that there are things that are not going well in your life and there are some convicting choices that you have to make, that's when it's hard to trust the Bible. From the very beginning of human time, this is exactly how it was. You remember our parents, right? Adam and Eve. You remember what happened to them? Genesis chapter 3 talks about there was this serpent. The Bible said he was more cunning than any other animal. And we know from just reading books like Isaiah and, and Daniel that we know that, that Satan entered the serpent. And so it's basically Satan talking through the serpent to Adam and Eve. And, and God told them that they were living in this place, and we know it as the Garden of Eden, right? And that they could eat of everything except what? One tree. And what was the tree that they couldn't eat of? The tree that told them the difference between good and right, the knowledge, knowledge and evil. He said, don't eat of this tree. Very clear command. Anything else they could do. And one day, Eve and Adam are by this tree, and the serpent comes, and he says, hey, did God really say you, you can't eat this? Did he really say, you sure that's what he said? And we know the end of the story. Adam eats. Spoiler alert. She gives it to, she gives it to uh, Eve eats. She gives it to Adam. And from that point forward, humanity, every single generation followed after them, were born into sin. You and I have developed, we have a sin nature because of Adam and Eve. Sinners don't, sinners aren't called sinners because they sin. They sin because they're sinners. It's, it's our character defect that we, that we basically inherited from Adam and Eve because what happened? The word of God was doubted. And they believe the doubt instead of believing the word of God. And it's the same way today. So when is it hardest for us to trust the Bible? When the Bible is trying to do its most important work change our life. So can we trust it? And then most importantly, do we trust what the Bible says? So I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I want you to stand as we read the word of God. And we're going to read the entire chapter to, to set the context. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here's what the Bible says. But know this, hard times will come in the last days, for people will be lovers of self, 
lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers without self-control, brutal without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power, avoid these people. Okay, For among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so these also resist the truth. And they are men who are corrupt in mind and worthless in the regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their foolishness will be clear to all as the foolishness of Janus and Jambres. But you have followed my teaching, conduct and purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, were persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and impostors will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you've known the sacred scriptures which are able to, be given, able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is, is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks for standing. So, the Apostle Paul, he writes this letter. And he writes several letters. We know that the Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And some of the letters he wrote to churches and some of the letters that some of the writers of, of the Bible, they, read, they wrote to individual people. And this was a letter written to a young pastor named Timothy. And Timothy, if you read the book of Acts and you read the travels of Paul, Timothy was probably in line to be the next Paul if he chose to be a missionary but most of the time you see Timothy pastoring churches. And so there was this correspondence that always went back and forth with Timothy. Now, what's interesting about 2 Timothy is that, A, we know that because there's a 2 Timothy, there's also a 1 Timothy, right? In the second letter of Timothy, most scholars believe that this is actually probably the la one of the last things that the Apostle Paul would ever write. Paul, history tells us, would be uh, beheaded by Emperor Nero in Rome. And so he was under house arrest and he was writing letters. And so at the end of this letter, you'll see him even say things like he's fought the good fight. He's fought, he's, he's finished the course laid, laid up for him as a crown of righteousness. Like all of these things, like talking about, you know, I'm, I'm going to be leaving this world soon. And so in this last letter, he talks about some things. And so he's writing to young Timothy and he just finished telling Timothy that the times, if we read what it says in the beginning of that chapter, times are going to be difficult and things are likely going to get worse. Now, I don't know about you. Can you relate to that? Times are getting difficult, right? Things are not getting better. Things seem to be getting worse, right? So we can relate to this. And so people are going to become, and this is the things that he talks about. People are going to become more selfish. People are going to become more arrogant. People are going to become greedier. People are going to become more brutal than they used to be. And they're going to be, and the end he says this, they're going to be less interested in God and his ways, 
Now, I don't know about you, just looking at the newspaper, looking at the media, or just walking down the street, you know that these things are true. These things not only categorize what was going on in the first century, it's the same thing that's happening today. And so the Bible says, so then he talks about, it's, if you look at what he, what he says in these verses, besides being lovers of money, besides being lovers of self, besides being boastful and proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, without love for what's good. Let's go to verse uh, three, uh, four. Traitors, they're reckless, they're conceited, they're lovers of, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then look at verse five. Holding to what? A form of what? Godliness, but denying its power. And then he says to avoid these people. So the epitome of our society getting worse isn't all of those things that are listed, the sum total of all those things is not only that they now not only don't want to listen to God more, it says that they know about God. So this, this, this decadence of society isn't just outside the walls of the church, it is permeated on the inside. So the church has become more worldly. The church has become more sinful. When the Bible talks about a mixed multitude, that in every crowd there are believers and unbelievers in the church, that is actually becoming more and more prevalent. And he says that it's not just that people don't know the truth, it's that they do know the truth and they hold this form, this, this pseudo sense of what it means to be godly, but because that they're not truly believers, what is it? They deny the power of what it means to be godly. They deny the power that's in the word of God. They are more about the facade and the show than what it really means to be a believer. And so what does Paul say to do to these people? Avoid them. Be careful. And we know primarily he's talking about these false that are seeping into the church. So they pretend to be godly. Instead, they do what they want. They Think about that. They pretend to have a relationship with Jesus, but instead being obedient to Jesus' words, the word of God, they're obedient to what? Whatever they want to do. Now, more than ever, I, I, I've noticed this in my own life, and maybe you've noticed it in your life, we are prone, we've always been prone to wander, right? But more than ever now, just because of things going out of control every other way in life, whether it's finances or politics or whatever it is, you and I just want to control something. Everything seems to be out of our control. We have no control of all these things, so what do we do? We try to control something. And the problem is because we are sinners, the way that we control things is never the godly way. And so some of us have the knowledge of the word of God. We understand what faith is all about, but we don't access who we, who we have as our savior and we try to do things on our own. We deny the truth that comes in the word of God. And Timothy recognizes that, that, that life in, with faith is going to be difficult, but, but he says that God is, is good. And so here's what verse 14, can we skip to verse 14? Paul wants Timothy to continue to move on. Paul wants Timothy, what he says, for you, okay? Regardless of what's going on in the world, here's what Paul tells Timothy to do. Continue in what you've learned and what you've believed. And he says, not just believe, but what? Firmly believed, right? So those words in the original language, the original language was written in his Koine Greek. 
And the word learned and the words and the phrase firmly believed means it's not something that was just passed by and that Timothy read it once like in a blog or something. He's saying you've studied this. You've seen this to be true. It's proven. This is fact. Timothy, you've seen the change in the life of people because of the word of God. You know it can be trusted. You have firmly believed. You've been convinced of these things. Then he goes on to say, where does this firmly held belief, these convictions, where do they come from? Because he's known, number one, who taught him, right? It also says, and he's known from a very baby. He's known the scriptures. It means Timothy was brought up understanding things about the Bible so that one day he came to Jesus Christ and because of all of those seeds that were planted. And he says, what did, what did these things do for you? It gave you wisdom for what? Salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All of this scripture, all of these things, all of this knowledge culminates in us what? Knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior. There's, there's, do you guys realize there's no point to us memorizing scripture if it doesn't lead us to Jesus. And the problem is, some of us, and some of us know people like this, or it may be us, and maybe God's gonna talk to you about it right now. Some of us know everything about church life. Some of us know everything about the Bible. In our heads, we know it all, but we still don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. We know the verses, we know what they say, we know what they mean, but it's never traveled from the head down to where the heart of knowledge is. And so he says the difference is that you firmly believe these things and it made you wise through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Timothy's been taught scripture since he was young. So scripture helped him become wise to the point of salvation. And then so then Paul ends this chapter saying that the scripture, the word of God, the Bible has been breathed out by God. So this is where we get the, the, the theological term inspiration. That the Bible is what? God breathed. That God spoke to men and men were moved to write exactly what God would have them say. It wasn't a trance, it wasn't mechanical, but God breathed his very words into the heart of men for them to write it down, that it's inspired by God. And we, this is important for us because we believe that the word of God isn't a book written by men. We believe it's a book written by God, but you just said man wrote it. No, men wrote it down, but they didn't write what they were thinking on their own. God moved them. Because if man wrote the, if man actually wrote the Bible, then we shouldn't trust it. We shouldn't trust it. Because men are flawed. Men are flawed. I remember I was in a, I was a senior in high school and I, I, I stunk at math. I mean, History, English, I was balling in those categories. I knew exactly all that stuff. Math, the worst. I decided to take the one class, I'm sorry, not just math, science. Hated science too, right? Then I decided to take the one class that puts those two things together, AP Physics. I lasted three days. And then I took the class that I was born to take, AP Culinary Arts. Amen? We made chocolate mousse, jambalaya, a whole bunch of stuff, right? But during those three days in physics, they gave me a textbook. 
And the one, this is my claim to fame in AP Physics. I knew nothing about the subject, but I did find three typos in the textbook. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right? I, try, I tried to get credit going, yo, this whole thing's flawed. You know what I'm saying? You gave the Puerto Rican guy the messed up book. You know what I mean? So I, I, want, I want credit. They're like, no, here's a new book, Rob. They didn't give me anything for it. Because even men, even the most smartest men in the world, if they're writing what they know, they make mistakes, right? So we don't trust a book on mathematics like we would trust the Bible, okay? The difference is this. Why, why do we say that it's inspired? Why do we say it's breathed by God? Because as you read about 40 authors, they all speak in their own language. They all speak with their own personality. But as you cross-reference Scripture with Scripture, you see that men who wrote something millennia before the other men wrote the exact same thing. And you see men who, who, who lived at the same time, they were contemporaries, who never met each other, writing the exact same thing. And you get into a local church, and the Word of God it just comes out, and it's the same thing. And so there's this idea of what it, what it means that God moved through men to write the same things. So we trust this book over every other book. So can we trust the Bible? Can we? Is it something that, is it a question that you've asked yourself? So think about this. When we say scripture is breathed out by God, we got to remember, okay, so a few things. The Bible that we're talking about today is the evangelical Bible that has 66 books in it. And it was written about approximately 40 different people. So think about this. Um, and uh, Paul Wagner, he wrote something, and this is in your notes if you have the app. The writing of scripture through mortal hands should not be viewed as one of which God breathed life into the words of an author after he'd written them. If this were the case, they'd be primarily man's words. So that means this. It wasn't like some guy wrote what he wanted, right? And it sounded super spiritual super good and God goes yeah that sounds good we'll add that that's not what happened but do you realize that's exactly what happens in every uh, everything that's written by government officials or everything that's even written by any kind of organized religion that uses other script other manuscripts besides the word of God that's exactly what happens drafts are written they go around People read it over, they make corrections, they make changes, it goes back again, and when it's finally done, they take the words that they wrote, and what do they do? Approved. In the Vatican, that happens. All these things come, and what happens at the end? The Pope just gives final approval. The Pope doesn't write all this stuff, right? It just comes in, and it goes like that. The, uh, the Mormon church does the same thing. When they make uh, a, a draft of, a, of an article of resolution, the same thing will happen. And, and it becomes just as important as scripture. The elders, they put it together and boom. But the difference between the word of God is it wasn't as God just looked at man's words and said, hey, that sounds good. I'm going to put that in there. No, he moved them to write exactly what he wanted them to write. And the approval of the word of God doesn't come from other men. There's confirmation because all those words match. So it's a, it's a book that's, that's special because of what God did. Um, uh, Wagner, he also writes this. God appears to have been so intimately involved in the lives of the writers that he knew what they would say and even how they would say it. Their individual personalities were thus combined with the indwelling, working guide of the Holy Spirit to create Scripture. So what this means is that God, like we said, knows us better than we know ourselves. So when God breathed, his word into men, he made sure they said it the way that they would say it. He knew them so well 
that the way that the Bible was written was exactly the way Matthew would say it as opposed to the way Mark would say it. The way John wrote is different than the way Paul would write. And it all comes together. So the other thing about being in, in breathed and being in inspired is the fact that this was not just some sort of, and this, this is important, maybe I, I gotta make sure we understand this. This is not just something for us to leave church and go, wow, that was a lot of stuff. Wow, that's really cool how God did that. And maybe that's the beginning of where you have to be, but this is the point. Do you realize God not only writing his word, but using men to do it, and then for it to be perfectly preserved, that the inspiration carries in with the preservation of God's word? This was a spiritual act. This was a miracle that we have the Bible in its entirety. God used his spirit to breathe his word into men. These men, when they wrote, even though they were writing the way that they were writing, they were inspired and indwelled by the spirit of God to write it. Man, I don't know if they knew that was happening. All I knew is that they were moved to write and what they wrote, the spirit wrote exactly what they should say. So much so that whatever one person said, it would directly correspond and match up with what someone else wrote. One of the greatest miracles about the preservation of Scripture, that remember, think about how many, how many millennia it's been since Scripture was written, right? I want you to think about this. That inside of the preservation, not one point of doctrine has ever been flawed. Not one point of doctrine has ever changed based on the text that we translate the Bible from. All of the, all of the uh, malfunctions, all of the perversions of doctrine come from us thinking it doesn't come from this book. So I want you to think about this. If there's ever a point in our life, me included, that the Bible says something that we don't agree with, the problem's us, not the Bible. Okay, this is where I want us to talk about when we talk about trusting the Bible, right? Because here's the thing. If the Bible says something that we don't like, our first knee-jerk reaction is to go, well, maybe that's not what it says. Or maybe I'm reading a bad translation. Maybe I got to get another one. Maybe. And so the funny thing is some of us will we'll go to the bookstore or we'll go to Amazon and we'll buy 20 different copies of the Word of God. We're, ah, that one says it too. Ah, no, this one says it too. I'm still wrong. And we try to find the one perverted version or some blog or some chicken soup for the soul, mamby-pamby thing that just says, oh, well, maybe it doesn't mean this. You just go on your own journey and God loves you. No. God's Word's true. We're the liars. So when God's word speaks, do we listen to what it says? Can we trust the Bible? And the bigger question is, do we trust the Bible? The act of the preservation is so miraculous that, that through millennia we still have this book. So there's one thing that, and, and this, is, this sounds really brainiac, but it's, it's not. There's a, there's a phrase, it's called biblical transmission. We gotta talk about this, because think about this. The Bible has been preserved for as long as there's been writing, as long as there's been things to write with, the word of God has been preserved. The Bible has been inspired. The Bible was created in the heart and mind of God before time even began. 
Okay, so when it started being written down, a question that we should ask ourselves is this. If God is going to use people not only to write it, okay, so like Paul writes his letter, there's no copy machines, right? There's no cloud. There's no PDFs. There's, this literally, God would use men not only to write the Bible, but then he would also use people to do what? Rewrite and record so, that, so think about this. Let's say uh, Paul's writing to the churches in Galatia, right? Not one church like Philippi, churches, which means his scribe had to write five copies. How did, he make, how did everything make sure that they, they all stayed the same? Sometimes, and you'll, if you read church history, there were actually men and women who would write false letters. This is how the false teachers got in. They would claim to be Paul. They would claim to be somebody that knew Paul. And how do, how do you defer, how do you differentiate between the real and the, and the fake? This is what biblical transmission is all about. A lot of misdocumentation. What if somebody just messed up? So we talked about this before, about the scribes, that the scribes, that they would continue to write uh, scrolls, especially as they get more worn out. And every time they would write something down, they would, especially if they wrote the special name for God, Yahweh, they would stop, they would wash their hands, they would pray, they would write the name. There was, there was meticulous work. How did all of this lead to us still having the Bible? Because think about this. In normal circumstances, this shouldn't have happened, Right? In a normal flow of every day, you and I should not have a copy of the word of God that we can trust. But throughout history, we continue to look back at the manuscripts that were written. And throughout history, we still see that the Bible remains true. So what do we do? This is, and this is something that uh, 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 Greg Gilbert, Why Trust the Bible, he, he actually spoke to people who weren't Christians to talk about the subject of biblical transmission, if anybody doesn't want to talk good about Christians, it would be a non-Christian, right? This, the, the, the scholars that he spoke to, they put it this way. They said, not one major change in Orthodox Christianity, doctrine, writing, even poetry and prose has been changed throughout millennia. This is a non-believer saying that. And I want you, I, I say all this stuff and it sounds really highbrow. The reason why I'm telling you all this stuff is that the, the fact that you and I have a Bible in our hand today, the fact why some of the underground church around the world who don't have Bibles crave a copy of this book and when they get a page of it, they cry, is because God not only inspired his word, he made sure that through all of the years since it was written till now, you and I still have a perfect copy. That is, that is incredible. I want to show you a video from the Canadian Bible Society that talks a little bit more about that. And then we're going to get into scripture about what this means for us. Do we trust the Bible? Have you ever thought the Bible seems a little far-fetched? To some people, the stories of the Bible would be better suited to a supermarket tabloid than a book about life and God. Some of the most shocking claims in the Bible are what it says about itself. The Bible declares that the word of God is alive and powerful, that all scripture is inspired by God, and that the Bible is a light that guides our steps. These are lofty declarations. Can we trust them? For the Bible to be trustworthy, it must be accurate, reliable, and relevant. So let's take a look at each one of these criteria. First, let's explore the accuracy of the Bible. 
In order to trust what the Bible says, we have to be certain that the message the authors first wrote down is the same message we read today. To give perspective, let's take a look at some other ancient documents. Plato wrote The Republic about 400 BCE. The earliest copy we have is from the 9th century CE. That's a time span of 1,300 years between when the book was first written and when we have our earliest copy. Only seven copies exist. Julius Caesar wrote his Gallic Wars around 100 BCE. The earliest copy we have is also from the 9th century CE. That's better than Plato's Republic, but it's still a time span of almost 1,000 years. Ten copies exist. Homer wrote the Iliad in 800 BCE. The earliest copy we have is from 400 BCE. That's only a time span of 400 years, and 643 copies exist. Furthermore, all the copies are 95% accurate to one another. When it comes to the writings of Plato, Julius Caesar, and Homer, no one doubts the accuracy of these documents. Now, what if we applied the same criteria to the New Testament? The New Testament was written between 50 and 100 CE. The earliest copy we have is from 125 CE, a time span of only 25 years. Over 24,000 copies in Greek, Latin, and other languages exist, and the Greek language copies are 99.5% accurate to one another. If we can trust the accuracy of these other historical documents, we can certainly trust the accuracy of the New Testament. But that's just the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? For many centuries, the oldest complete Hebrew manuscripts were from 900 CE, which is a time span of 1,300 years from the completion of the Old Testament to our earliest copy. But in the middle of the 20th century, Bedouin shepherds and a team of archaeologists discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, Old Testament manuscripts from before the time of Christ. The quality control of biblical transmission from one copy to the next was so rigid that even after 1,000 years, the copies were word-for-word word identical with each other in more than 95% of the text, and most of the differences were in spelling. So, is the Bible accurate? After applying the same criteria to all the historical documents, it becomes clear that the Old and New Testaments are the most accurately preserved and verified documents of the ancient world. We can depend on the accuracy of the Bible, but even though it precisely conveys the original message of its authors, in order for the Bible to be trustworthy, that message must also be reliable. So let's explore whether or not the Bible is a reliable source of information about the world. The Bible has many ways of presenting its message. Its literary genres include poetry, history, biography, letters, and apocalyptic. Some of these genres are meant to be literal. Some are not. To read the Bible's imagery and symbolism as a literal interpretation or a scientific journal would be incorrect. But science and scripture are not in conflict with each other. The Bible has inspired many modern scientific pursuits based on the belief that the universe was made by a rational creator. Many famous scientists throughout history trusted the Bible as God's word, including Francis Bacon, Galileo, Isaac Newton, and Charles Babbage. In fact, Galileo wrote, The Bible cannot err. This trust in the Bible's message continued into the modern era. In the 20th century, two-thirds of Nobel laureates in science and medicine were men and women of the Christian faith. Many scientists throughout history have found the Bible to be a reliable, though not always literal, source of information about the nature of the world. 
As well as inspiring scientific exploration and discovery for centuries, the Bible has also become a valuable reference tool for historians and archaeologists, many of whom recognize it as a source of reliable historical information. For example, Alexander the Great is a historical figure from the 4th century BCE. Even though it was 400 years before his first biography was written, no one questions his existence. Jesus is a historical figure from the 1st century CE. His first biographies, the Synoptic Gospels, were written within 30 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. One of his biographers, a medical doctor named Luke, records how he carefully investigated eyewitness reports in order to write an accurate account of the life of Jesus. Other non-biblical historians, such as Josephus and Pliny the Younger, also recorded elements of his life. In fact, there is more evidence for Jesus from within and without the Bible than there is for almost any other person from this time period. So much so that modern scholarship now concludes that Jesus historically existed and the New Testament is a reliable source of historical information. Beyond biography, archaeology also continues to provide extremely powerful external evidence for the reliability of the Bible. For example, the previously doubted biblical accounts of Abraham, the Hittite people, Nazareth, Pontius Pilate, and Jesus have all been affirmed by modern archaeological discoveries. This growing recognition of the Bible's reliability now means that both biblical and non-biblical scholars value the Bible as a dependable source of historical information. So, we can trust that the Bible is both accurate and reliable. But in order for the Bible to be completely trustworthy, its message cannot be meaningless. It must be as compelling today as when it was first written, which leads us to our final criteria. Is the Bible relevant? Can an ancient book from 2,000 years ago still speak into our lives today? Even in our busy and frantic world, the deepest questions of humanity have not changed. Is there a God? What happens when I die? Is there any purpose to life? These questions are timeless, and the answers the Bible supplies about life, faith, and truth are also timeless. It is the description God gave us of who He is and His love and plans for humanity. The Bible remains relevant to us today, and its message is one that continues to bring inspiration, comfort, and hope to those who read it. Because of its challenging claims and message, the Bible has drawn more attention and more study than any other book in history, and the ongoing research of its manuscripts and its message concludes that the Bible is unparalleled in the accuracy of transmission, unequaled as a reliable source of historical information, and unsurpassed in its continuing relevance to readers throughout the centuries. Because of this, we can trust the Bible. We can trust what it says about life, God, and itself. We can trust that the Bible's message is accurate, reliable, relevant, and true. It is the inspired word of God for all people. Written by 40 authors over 13 centuries on three continents, yet with one message. The radical love of God for humanity never ends. When someone asks us why or can we trust the Bible or do you trust the Bible, we always say yes. And I think that's because we may just have that in our spiritual muscle memory to say yes. And hopefully the, the video helps you understand why just 
educationally why we can trust the Bible. But what I want us to close with today as we get ready for communion is this. Do you trust the Bible? Can we? Of course. I don't think that's a question for the, for the majority of the room that we have to really just spend any more time on. Yeah, we can trust it. But the question is, do we trust it? Do we trust it with everything that's going on in our life? Paul concludes in verse 16, he says, all scripture is inspired by God. And we spent a lot of time talking about that. But here's what it is. It's profitable. This is what we talk about, just the, rev- the being relevant. It goes beyond being relevant. The Bible is good for us. The Bible is the source of all knowledge about who God is. It's profitable then for what? For teaching. The word of God, more than any other book, tells us how to live and what is right. It's not a book of rules and regulations. It's a book that shows us the boundaries of what's right and what's not. This is the way that we should live. It's more than just the thus saith the Lord. It's when, when God speaks, here's how he blesses because we live the right way. Second thing is this, for rebuking. If the Bible tells us how to live and what's right, the Bible is also the source for our authority to find out what's not right or when we're not living right. The Bible is more than just a, a, a list of do's and don'ts or a list of what is correct and what's not. The Bible also tells us if we are not living the way that we should be living, here's why it's wrong. That leads into the Bible being pr- pr- uh, profitable for correction. One of the most merciful things that God has done for us is to give us the Bible to show us not only what's right and wrong, but how we can get right with God. God doesn't end his story by just saying, you are wicked, rotten sinners on your way to hell. He provides a way for us to have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The central theme of the Bible isn't don't do this and do that. The central theme of the Bible is that we can't do this and we can't do that so we can rely on Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. We don't have to do it right. God will make us right. So it teaches us what's right, it teaches us what's wrong, it teaches us how we can get right with God, and then, not only that, our relationship with God, our salvation through Jesus Christ is way more than just fire insurance. It's not just for us not to go to hell. It's profitable for the fourth thing, for training in righteousness. God has not only made the provision for us to have forgiveness of sins and have eternal life, God has made the provision through his word to teach us how we can live this new life in Christ. That instead of being slaves to sin, that we can live for the glory of God. Why? Why has God given us his word? Why is it important that we know that we can trust the Bible for this? So that the man and woman of God can do what? Be complete. Other translations say mature. Why? That we can be mature in his word so we can do what? Be ready for every good thing. Do you realize that our moral actions have no backbone to it if it's not backed by spirituality? 
Doing right for right's sake is not what God wants. Us doing good things, us living a life that's pleasing to God, us serving other people are all for us to bring glory to God and to bring people to Jesus Christ. And the Bible not only teaches us what's right and wrong and how to get right and how to stay right with God, it shows us how we can go forward and serve other people because of Jesus Christ. So do you trust the Bible? Do you trust it as being historically accurate? Do you trust it as being reliable? Do you trust it as being profitable for us? Is it true in your life? That's the question I want you to think about. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, do you trust what the Bible says? Do you trust it?